My dear respected members joining in um, here at the program for Darussalam uh, Masjid. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. I hope everyone's in the best state of iman and the best state of health. <clears throat> we carry on our discussion on aqidah, the basic fundamentals of aqidah that we have been going over the past two weeks. Um, last week, we went over um, the first article of faith, which is belief in one Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, one God, along with his attributes. And now we move on to the next article, which is with regards to our belief in prophets. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Verily, we have sent you with the truth, a bearer of glad tidings, and a warner. And there never was a nation, but a warner had passed among them. Look at this ayat carefully. In Surah Fatir, ayah number 35, to, uh, sorry, Surah Fatir, Surah number 35, ayah number 24, Allah says, and there would, never was a nation, but a warner had passed amongst them. According to the narrative of Islam, and this is a shared narrative with Christianity and Judaism as well, we believe that every era, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had sent a specific prophet to the various peoples of this world. In one narration of Musnad Ahmad, and again, the, uh, another narration in Jami'ul Tirmidhi, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi said that approximately 124,000 prophets were sent. 124,000 anbiya, nabis were sent, amongst which 315 of them were Rasul, were messengers. Now, in a second, we're going to go into the difference between a Nabi and a Rasul. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't just create Adam alayhi salam and didn't just send him to this world and didn't leave mankind to just simply grope in the darkness. Rather, Allah had sent numerous prophets, 124,000 of them approximately, one after the other, to remind mankind of his purpose in life, to provide him with guidance. And as Allah mentioned in Surah Nisa, Surah number four, ayah number 164, and messengers we have mentioned to you before, and messengers we have not mentioned to you. Meaning that many of the messengers were mentioned by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran. Many of their stories we are familiar with. We know their identities, we even know their lineages, and even you know, a little bit of their description, how they look like. But the vast majority of prophets that were sent to this world, they were lost to the sands of history. We don't really know their identity. Just as a given fact, we know that Allah had sent many of them. Now, many people may ask, some people may ask, that if so many prophets were sent, you Muslims claim 124,000 prophets were sent, where is the historical evidence of them having existed. And the reply to this, in short, is that it's not true that there are no historical precedents or evidence of these great figures that came in history, but rather all religions, all religions or major religions have this concept of this special human being that serves as a, as a link between humanity and the divine that was sent to mankind for one purpose or another. And they have different variations of this concept. We can surmise or we can guess that many of these religions once upon a time perhaps were true. 
were actually true religions sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through an actual prophet. But over time, over the millenniums, these religions became corrupted. So for example, in Hinduism, they have the concept of what they call in Sanskrit, the avatar, or in English, it's translated as the avatar. And they claim, you know, in Hinduism, there are many claims with regards to what the avatar is, but fundamentally more or less, they claim that it's this human personality that either was a manifestation of God or the will of the manifestation or a manifestation of God's will. And they have various examples of that within their own tradition. They have Vishnu and whatnot. In Buddhism, they have the concept of the Buddha. Some, for example, the school of Mahayana Buddhism, they speak about these series of Buddhas that came and they're still awaiting the final Buddha, what they call the Maitreya. And in Zoroastrianism, which was the ancient religion of uh, Persia, the Persian empire, they also have a concept of prophethood. Judaism has a concept of prophethood. Christianity has a concept of prophethood. So there is strong evidence that there were individuals that were historically sent to dispense the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the will of God. Now we believe that many of these religions have gotten it wrong. Their concept of prophethood is wrong. For example, the Christians, uh, they seem to attribute sins to some of their prophets. They narrate that in, in the Bible, it's mentioned that Nuh alayhi salam, the prophet Noah, was one time drunk and in his drunkenness he took off his clothes and he sat there naked as a muslim we don't believe that a prophet could commit such an act and we're going to go into more detail about that in a bit they claim the bible for example that sulaiman had fornicated with his daughters as a muslim this is unthinkable for us to imagine that a prophet would do such a thing in the bible Dawood the prophet david is accused of having lustful um, aspirations for a woman and having forcefully you know, married her and raped her. Again, in the Islamic context, we don't believe that this is possible. Other religions claim that prophets have some part of it, you know, some part of them is divine, that they're like half God or the manifestation of God. As Muslims, again, we don't believe that. We believe that, that the prophets were just simply human beings. Bottom line is that as Muslims, we believe that Allah had sent numerous prophets. Some of them, we know their names. Most of them, we do not. But nonetheless, we respect and we believe in every single prophet that had ever come or that was ever sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala equally. So some of the prophets that we are familiar with, which are the Quranic prophets, that Allah had mentioned them in detail, are Adam alayhi salam, Idris alayhi salam, Nuh, Nuh, they call him the second Adam because we believe that a great flood came and destroyed the people of Nuh. And from Nuh, a new progeny of human beings started. So all of the descendants of humans today are actually descended from Nuh. We believe in Hud and Saleh. We believe in the patriarch Ibrahim. We believe that the Jews descended from Ibrahim. And also the Arabs, modern day Arabs, also a lot of them, they descended from Ibrahim salam. In fact, the Prophet Muhammad wasallam was a distant descendant of Ibrahim salam, the Prophet Abraham, just like how Moses and Jesus, Musa and Isa salam, Sulaiman and Dawood, Solomon and David, they were also descendants of Ibrahim salam, but from two different branches. And we had Lut salam, Ismail, Ishaq, Yaqub, the story of Yusuf salam, 
was dealt with in much detail. An entire chapter was revealed with regards to Yusuf alayhi salam. We know of Musa alayhi salam, who was considered the most prof important prophet of Judaism, and also, of course, a very important prophet in our tradition as well. And it carries down, there are certain prophets which we don't have much detail about, but were mentioned in the Quran nonetheless. For example, Al-Yasa' or Dhul Khifr. And then we have, of course, Isa alayhi salam, who was the prophet that immediately preceded Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. It's mentioned that be, between Isa alayhi salam, the prophet Jesus, and Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, there was a period of approximately 570 years, which in Arabic we call as the fatra, the, you can say the phase in which no revelation or no prophets were sent. And then finally, we have Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam that we believe to be the final and last messenger. We respect and believe in all the prophets. As a Muslim, it's an obligation for us to affirm this, both with our hearts and verbally. That's why we say, Amantu billahi wa malaikati wa kutubihi wa rusulihi. That we believe in Allah, his angel, his books, and his rusul, his prophets, his messengers. We don't reject one, or we don't consider one inferior to the other. But, with regards to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, we consider him to be the most superior prophet in terms of virtue because of many indications, right? Many, both from explicit statements of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam to other indications as well. We believe, for example, that the prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam was once blessed with this miraculous journey that we call Isra and Mi'raj. Isra and Mi'raj is the miraculous journey that the prophet undertook by the permission of Allah wherein Jibreel Islam transported the Prophet from Mecca to Jerusalem in one night. And from there, he vertically ascended to the heavens and was brought into the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, while the Prophet during this holy journey, miraculous journey, was in Jerusalem, many of the souls of the prophets were returned. And they all had prayed, according to some narrations, behind Rasulullah in Jama'ah. And the Prophet Muhammad is the final messenger. We believe that there is no more Prophet to come. The Prophet said, There is no more Prophet to come after him. Mentioned in a narration once after that the Prophet had, you know, after 23 years of hardship and propagating his message, he had finally achieved success in every single level, spiritually, politically, in every single way. And the Prophet ﷺ, after he had conquered Mecca without any, without any violence, the people, the Sahaba rejoiced, and rightfully so. Right? They were successful after so many years they had achieved their goal. All of Arabia at that time had come under the rule of the Prophet ﷺ and under the religion of Islam. But Umar, عنه, according to one narration, he sat there crying quietly to himself. And the Prophet ﷺ asked Umar anhu why he was so perturbed. Why was he upset? Whereas everyone else was celebrating. And Umar anhu, having understood the true nature of this recent development, the conquest of Mecca, he said that, Ya Rasulullah, it means that you are no longer going to be here with us for much longer. And the Prophet ﷺ himself was astounded at the intelligence of Umar anhu. Whereas everyone's mindset was somewhere else. Right? It was fixated on the victory that they had achieved by the will of Allah. The Prophet uh, Umar anhu was anticipating the demise of Rasulullah and then the Prophet had said that if there were to be a Prophet after him on account of his intelligence, 
it would have been Umar. But then the Prophet added a clause by way of caution to his people and said, La Nabiya Badi, but there is no Prophet to come after me. So the Prophet is the final messenger. To believe in all these prophets and to reject one, this will cast a person outside the pale of Islam. If everyone accepts, if a person accepts all the prophets except, let's say, Isa Islam, or let's say Musa Islam, or he says something bad against any, any of these prophets, against the honor of these prophets, then he will essentially cast himself outside the pale of Islam. Or if every anyone accepts all these prophets, including the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, but they accept another so-called another person after the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam as a prophet, then this will also cast him outside the pale of Islam. What we're obligated to believe with regards to these prophets is that we respect and we accept all of these prophets, including Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and we say that Muhammad is the final messenger. There's no more prophet to come. Right? There are numerous people throughout history who have claimed prophethood for themselves. In fact, during the very lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ, there were false claimants to prophethood. One such example is that of Muselma. His name was Muselma, and he was from the Banu Hanifa tribe. And Muselma, he saw the success of the Prophet ﷺ, and near the end of the Prophet's mission, near the end of the Prophet's life, Muselma, he had the audacity to aspire to this mantle of prophethood. And he began to proclaim amongst his own tribesmen that indeed I am a messenger of God. And his tribesmen accepted him because they wanted the honor for themselves. Why should the tribe of Quraysh, the tribe of Muhammad sallallahu why should they have all the glory? And Musaylma had the audacity to actually write a letter to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu And in that letter, more or less, he wrote that from the Prophet of God, Musaylma, to the Prophet of God, Muhammad sallallahu And more or less, this is what he said. He said that half the world belongs to me, half the world belongs to you. And basically, he's offering his alliance to the Prophet Muhammad as a co-prophet. And when the Prophet Muhammad received this message, now the Prophet by nature, he was a very calm person normally. And he was more inclined by nature towards smiling, you know, being more lighthearted. But this was one of those rare occasions in which the Prophet became very angry. And his face began to redden. And he turned his face away from the envoy that had come from Muselma to deliver this message to the Prophet. And the Prophet asked these envoys that, Do you also believe in the message of this person? Do you believe in his prophethood? And these two envoys affirmed that, Yes, we believe that Muselma is a prophet. And the Prophet said, that the, more or less to the effect that if it weren't for the fact that killing envoys, it's immoral, I would have killed you out of anger. And then the Prophet wrote a letter back to Muselma saying that from Muhammad, Rasulullah, the messenger of Allah to Muselma al-Kathab, to Muselma the liar. Kathab means liar. The world does not belong to me. The world does not belong to you. It belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he gives it to whomsoever he wills. And this was his, you know, his short reply to Muselma. And Muselma, for the time being, he remained quiet and only he, he only uh, uh, you know, raised his abiha uh, again once uh, Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala had taken the khilafah. And after that, many other claimants to prophethood throughout history have met with some success on various levels. And anybody who's believed in any of them cast themselves out of the pale of Islam. The most recent, you can say, with some level of success, 
was Mirza Ghulam Ahmad uh, from the village of Qadian in modern day India. And he claimed to be a prophet after the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu The followers of his, of his sect, they um, called themselves the Ahmadiyya and they claimed to be Muslims. But according to um, the Quran and Sunnah, according to all the scholars of Islam, they are not Muslims despite their apparent belief in the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu They disqualify themselves as Muslims because they don't have the crucial aspect of the finality of the prophethood of Muhammad Sallallahu amongst uh, their tenets of aqidah. So it's absolutely crucial for Muslims to believe that the Prophet Muhammad is the final messenger. Now what exactly is a prophet? <clears throat> the most basic definition of a prophet is a person who received revelation from Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And a prophet is of two types. You have those prophets who are called a Nabi and the plural is Anbiya. Singular is Nabi, plural is Anbiya. Plural is anbiya. And then second, you have what's called a rasul, or the plural, which is rusul. A, now, there are many definitions forwarded or suggested by ulama, right? Some people claim that a nabi is like a minor prophet, whereas a rasul is a major prophet. Some people claim that a rasul is somebody that brings a new law, a new book. And a nabi comes to support the message of that Rasul. So the examples that they'll give is, let's say, Musa alayhi salam. He was a Rasul. He was given the book of the Torah, right, the Torah. And he brought a new Sharia, a new law from God with him, which he implemented amongst his people. And after Musa, who was a Rasul, there were various Anbiya, there were various Nabis who came, like Sulaiman alayhi salam, or let's say, uh, uh, Daniel alayhi salam, Armi alayhi salam or Yusha alayhi salam. And they came to enforce the Sharia and the book and the law that was given to Musa alayhi So therefore, they were the Nabis that were under this Rasul. That's one common definition which is forwarded. However, um, I believe that the definition that I've provided here is the most coherent definition. And why I think this is the most coherent definition, we can discuss it further in our more detailed course, inshallah. So over here, According to this definition, a Nabi is a person who receives revelation from Allah, but was not commanded to convey it to the people. So basically, this individual, he received instructions from Allah to carry out various tasks in his life. But he was not necessarily told to proclaim his prophethood to the people. And then you have a Rasul. And a Rasul, according to this definition, is a male Right, emphasis on the word male, a male person who received the revelation from Allah and was commanded to convey it to the people. In other words, he was told to do tabliq, to give da'wah, to call people and to proclaim himself as a messenger from God that must be accepted by all the people. Now, why was the clause male added in Rasul? The majority of the ulama, or sorry, there's a consensus amongst the ulama, all the ulama, all the scholars, they say that all the rusul, all the rasuls, all the messengers were only males. They're only males. A female could not have been a rasul. And the reasons for this is that a rasul was more like a king. He was also a political figure as well. He had to wage war. He had to um, organize the defense of the people. And he was normally met with immense opposition. And he had to carry out tasks which were traditionally considered to be within the scope of 
you know, the responsibilities of a man. And he had to fiercely oppose his people. Whereas a Nabi, the majority of scholars say that Nabi or Anbiya were also men, but there's a minority of scholars. A minority of scholars claim that women could have been prof, uh, uh, Nabis as well. And the examples that they give is Maryam salam, the mother of Isa salam. Another example that they give is um, that of the mother of Musa salam, etc. Amongst these minority of scholars who believe that a Nabi could be a female as well is that of Imam Qurtubi. And he mentioned this in quite a bit of detail in his tafasir. But um, this discussion, there's more of a back and forth exchange, a quite interesting debate that takes place um, that both sides use ayat of the Quran to base their claims. And we can go into that in more detail in the more um, extensive course, inshallah. Bottom line, a Nabi, according to this definition, is somebody who receives revelation from Allah, but is not necessarily instructed to convey that message, whereas a Rasul is instructed to convey that message. <clears throat> now, there are various attributes that we believe that the prophets must have. Just like how we believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has certain attributes. Similarly, the concept of prophet of Islam is not left in a vacuum. It's a loaded concept. And our understanding of prophets or the office of prophethood differentiates us from other religions and their understanding of prophets or whatever they may call these individuals. Number one, we believe that the prophets, all prophets were endowed with exceptional intelligence and acute judgment. They're exceptionally intelligent people. Why? Because the prophets were destined to become leaders and a leader must have intelligence. Right? And there, you know, the lives of the prophets والسلام, and والسلام, are replete with examples of fair judgment. Number two, they must already be truthful. Then never in their lives had they lied. And that's one of the reasons why a prophet's claim is must be accepted. One of the main reasons, or you can say the main credentials that the Prophet ﷺ had to support his claim to prophethood, amongst many other um, factors, was that he was already known and as a sadiq and al-amin, the truthful and the trustworthy, prior to his prophethood. His whole life, he was called al-amin al-sadiq. Number three, every prophet that came, they did delivered the entire message or whatever they were commanded to deliver. If Allah had given them even one ayah, one verse from a book, or one piece of instruction, they conveyed it in full. They never ever hit anything back. Number four, they must be completely abstinent from any sort of evil. According to the tradition of Islam, according to our theology, we believe that the prophets were infallible in the sense that they could not commit any evil. Sure, they could make mistakes and errors of judgment, but intentionally disobeying a commandment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was impossible for the prophets. They did not commit any major sins, nor did they commit any minor sins, whether it be before prophethood or whether they be, it be after prophethood, according to most of the scholars. Now, there are some objections to this attribute over here. Some people may say then, what about Adam alayhi salam? Did he not eat from the forbidden fruit? Actually, it wasn't a fruit, according to Ibn Kathir. It was actually a type of wheat. But whatever, he ate from that forbidden tree. Or what about um, Yunus alayhi salam? Wasn't he punished by being swallowed by a fish for breaking the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because he left the people that he was assigned to invite to the truth? What about Ibrahim alayhi salam? Did 
didn't he lie to his people when he said that, you know, um, I'm sick and I don't want to go to the festivities? Or when he said that I didn't break the idols, the biggest one amongst them broke it. Now, there is quite a bit of detail to each answer. Again, for those details, we can carry on in our, uh, um, you know, more extensive uh, coverage of this uh, tenet, inshallah, in our course. But in a nutshell, the ulama, they have reinterpreted all these actions of the prophets to mean an error of judgment. So let me give you one example. With regards to Adam salam, the ulama would say, the scholars would say, that Adam salam did not intentionally want to break the commandment of Allah. But rather, over time, what the shaitan did is that he convinced Adam salam that the, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala meant don't eat from this tree in a very uh, general manner. In a very sorry, in a very specific manner, meaning don't eat from this particular tree, but rather you can partake of any other tree. For example, if I say don't eat from the apple tree, and I meant don't eat from the apple tree in general, but you misunderstood, and you understood me saying don't eat from this specific apple tree that's in my backyard, and therefore you went and you ate from an apple tree that's somewhere else in a far off distance. So Adam alayhi salam, the ulama say, probably made a mistake according to that nature. It was an error of judgment. But never did any prophet ever commit any sin intentionally or disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not that they're not capable of sinning. Rather, it's their honor and their taqwa, their piety that prevented them from sinning. What I mean by it's not that they're incapable of sinning. Angels are incapable of sinning. Angels don't have choice like we do. But prophets have choice, but every single time they chose good over evil. There was never a case in any prophet's life in which they intentionally disobeyed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And number five, this is quite a unique one. They were free from prolonged diseases which cause aversion. Prolonged diseases meaning, I don't mean these normal headaches or fevers or colds, etc. But any type, of, any type of sickness that might have caused people to move away from them. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that a prophet would have this sort of disease on them. And the reason for this is that if a prophet's job is to convey his message to the people, if a Rasul's job is to convey the message to the people, how would he do so if he has like a contagious disease, let's say like coronavirus or leprosy, etc. That's why the majority of the ulama say that prophets have to be free from any type of disease that causes aversion or that you know can spread from one person to another. Now, what about the, um, you know, the, the assumption or the belief that Ayyub salam, the prophet who was famously tested with various trials, it's famously stated with regards to him that he had a very um, contagious disease. Some people say it was leprosy. Other people say it was a different type of uh, um, parasite that infected his skin. For which reason the people, because of their aversion to this disease, they made him into an outcast. According to the great Shami Syrian scholar, uh, Sheikh Mustafa Al-Khin, rahimahullah, he believes that these are fabricated. These uh, um, allegations don't actually have any sort of basis. Ayyub was definitely tested, but not by a disease that caused any sort of aversion. So these are the five qu uh, qualities that as Muslims we believe every single prophet must have as an attribute. Now, why does mankind even need prophets? What's the reason that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had sent a prophet to mankind to begin with? Number one, for the sake of obtaining guidance through the prophets towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
The interesting thing is that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had left us without sending any prophets in a normal state, we would actually be inclined and still be capable of deducing the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The reason for this is, is that Rasulullah said in authentic hadith that every single child was born according to a fitrah. Fitrah means a natural disposition. What exactly does fitrah mean? Fitrah can either mean that a person was born a Muslim, or it can mean that a person was born with the capacity to accept Islam, a natural inclination towards Islam, a natural inclination towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or belief towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then the Prophet said that as man, as that child grew up, his environment and his upbringing, his parents more or less, it made him into a Jew, a Christian, or a Magian, a Zoroastrian, meaning that it was his external influences that covered up his fitrah, the natural disposition of his inclination towards Allah, and made him into a non-Muslim, into a kafir. But if you look deep within ourselves, we all have the fitrah embedded within our hearts. When we read the Quran, the Quran is actually there to reach out to our natural fitrah. When we pause to reflect and ponder over creation, it's our fitrah speaking to us from those many, you know, from the many layers of dirt and kufr that we've accumulated over over the years, and it's, which has kind of covered up our hearts. But Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is so merciful <clears throat> that He didn't leave mankind to figure it out Himself. He sent so many prophets as reminders to mankind <clears throat> of His true purpose in life, which is to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. <clears throat> Number two, the purpose of the office of Prophet is to inform mankind about relevant unseen entities. There are many things out there that we cannot possibly deduce or come to believe through the mere usage of our five senses, through um, testimony, or through our own logical deduction. For example, the existence of the afterlife, of Jannah and Jahannam, of resurrection, about the reality in the graves, about the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take us into account, of the fact that our deeds will be weighed on the mizan, on the balance. All of these things are not phenomena that we can deduce through our own logical deduction, but rather Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us about these realities which have direct relevance to our lives and our afterlife through the office of prophethood, through these individuals called Anbiya. Number three, providing mankind with a path to success in this world and the hereafter. See, as human beings, we are highly susceptible to our upbringing, to our own emotional biases, to envy, to greed, etc. And sometimes in our pursuit of truth, we are kind of waylaid and we're taken off the path by these influences and these weaknesses that we have been created with. And it prevents us from trying to assess reality objectively or trying to construct a system, a moral system of life through our own experiences. For example, if a civilization is accustomed to the tyranny of dictatorships, of authoritarian rule, the morality which they would conjure up or the political system which they would make up is one which is far removed from an authoritarian rule, right? And that's how, for example, democracy came about. Whereas you take another civilization that historically 
authoritarian rule worked nicely for them. They would tend more towards a collectivist type of lifestyle or political thought. So our biases, our historical experience, our own emotions, our greed, our envy, it directly affects our ability to construct truth. And if this is the case, how do we know that what we are practicing or what we are doing or what we consider good and evil are objectively so? The only being that can correctly and truly and rightfully provide us with a moral code, an objectively true way of life is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, from a God who is free of these influences, who transcends these human weaknesses. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the prophets has communicated to us an objectively moral, object, object, objectively true moral code. Number four, to inform mankind and to remind him of his duties. Mankind is charged with responsibilities that he must fulfill, right? We have responsibilities and rights that we owe to others. And a lot, these are not things that we can logically deduce again. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala constantly reminds us what we owe to others. Mankind will also be held accountable for his actions, no matter what we do, whether it be good or bad. If it's good, Allah tells us those prophets that we will be rewarded. And if we have suffered or if we do evil or, or if we inflict suffering, then we will have to suffer those consequences in the akhirah. We'll be held accountable by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if we've suffered ourselves, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that you will not suffer in vain if you suffer properly. There is some sort of meaning to our suffering and there's reward in the hereafter awaiting those who suffered. And mankind is being tested. Allah informs mankind that our primary duty is to be tested by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah says, Allah says that we will surely definitely test you. We will definitely test you with a little bit of hunger, poverty, fear, loss in wealth, loss in life. But glad tidings to those who are patient. And Allah carries on who are the patient. That those who are afflicted by any sort of adversity or calamity or hardship, he immediately says and he attests that indeed we are from Allah and we will return to Allah. Meaning that a person who is suffering, he is aware that my suffering is not in vain. I came for the sole purpose of worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to obey him and to follow his commands. And I will return to him where he will reward me. Allah says in the Quran, that I have not created man and jinn except to obey me, to worship me. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent a series of 124,000 prophets throughout history to remind mankind of his primary purpose in life, which is to worship him. And number five, to provide mankind with an ideal example to emulate. Allah simply could have sent the Quran from the sky, could have dropped it on some person. But rather than just giving us a book of instructions, Allah says in the Quran, do this. And through the example of the Prophet Muhammad shows us this is how you're going to do it. We believe that all the prophets were human beings just like us. They were made of flesh. They were made of blood and bones just like us. They felt pain. They felt pleasure. They loved and they were loved in return. They were human beings just like us. They had the needs of thirst, of providing for the families, of hunger, etc., etc. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us, or showed to us rather, through the example of these prophets, that you have to obey me, and this is how you're going to do it. You have to live a moral life, and this is how you're going to do it. 
You have to uphold justice and worship me, and this is how you're going to do it. And we look to examples of our immediate Prophet Muhammad to see how that takes place. Finally, how do we understand the claim of a Prophet? You know, any, if anybody comes and starts to claim a Prophet, do you believe him? Obviously not. We verify the Prophethood of a person through this concept called in Islam a mu'jiza. A mu'jiza is a miracle that manifests by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the hands of his messenger. Now, what exactly is a mu'jiza? What exactly is a miracle? It's a violation of the law of nature. Right? So let's take the example of Musa alayhi salam and you know him splitting the sea. That's not something that you see every day. Naturally, water is supposed to be at a, you know, naturally water doesn't split into two separate sections or multiple separate sections. And once this phenomenon takes place, all naturalistic explanations are exhausted, meaning that we can't explain this through scientific means or through logical explanation, right? Nothing in our day-to-day -day experience, whether it be through our own experience or whether it be through the experience of experts can explain this phenomenon. And also marjiza, it's distinct from karama, istidraj and ihana, meaning that it's, a karama is a type of miracle that manifests at the hands of a pious individual. Istidraj is a supernatural feat that manifests at the hands of a kafir, a person who's not pious. For example, the Dajjal, he will come and by the permission of Allah, he's going to perform miraculous feats. That's called istidraj. And ihana is a supernatural feat which manifests at the hands of someone who claims prophethood, but it goes against it. So for example, Musail Makadab, he claimed prophethood and he tried to perform a miracle by predicting the future. But the future, it uh, you know, it occurred contrary to what Muslima had predicted. This is what you call ihana. So marjiza is distinct from all of these. Marjiza is a miracle which is not replicable by any other person and manifests at the hands of a person who is claiming nabuah from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and it's accompanied by a challenge. He's telling the people that do it if you guys are capable. You can't. The only reason I can do it, it's because Allah has made me a prophet. When a marjiza takes place, this is affirmation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's side that this is indeed my prophet. I'm verifying this by allowing the supernatural feat to take place at his hands. There's a lot more to be said with regards to the marjizat uh, that manifests at the hands of the prophets. Inshallah, again, we can go into more detail about this concept in our more extensive uh, coverage of it. So there were many marjizat which our own prophet Muhammad sallallahu had performed. Some of the more famous ones is him splitting the moon or um, water gushing from his fingertips. Uh, uh, Rasulullah he was able to create an abundance of food. For example, there's a famous narration in which Abu Hurairah who narrated, in which the Prophet used a bowl of milk and he fed about 70 individuals from that bowl. Right? This is a supernatural feat. Another great miracle of the Prophet was his journey of Isra and Mi'raj that we spoke about. And the greatest miracle is that of the Quran. And how is the Quran a miracle? Again, inshallah, in our more detailed coverage of it, we will talk about that and go into detail. So in short, to summarize, Muslims with regards to the prophets, we believe that they are individuals who received wahi, revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they were of two types, either they were a Nabi or a Rasul. According to the definition that I provided, a Rasul it was distinctly a male who received revelation from Allah and he was told by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to convey his prophethood 
to the people and his message to the people. And we believe that the prophets have certain attributes. They are truthful. They are intelligent. They are completely abstinent from any sort of evil or any sort of sin. And also that the prophets <coughs> are beings that do not suffer from some sort of contagious disease. And the way that we verify who's a prophet or not, it's through this concept of marjaza, a miracle which manifests at their hands. All these things we're obligated to believe. We are told of approximately of 27 prophets in the Quran by name. However, according to a narration of Tirmizi, as I mentioned, and of Musnad Ahmad, there were approximately 124,000 Anbiya, alayhim wassalam, prophets that were sent. With regards to all the prophets, after mentioning each of their names, we always say, alayhim wassalam, which means peace be upon them or upon be peace. And with regards to the Prophet Muhammad, we specifically say, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. That may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shower his blessings upon him and peace. Okay. Um, next week, inshallah, we will be covering in detail the concept of um, books that were revealed to the various prophets and more specifically with regards to our own book, which is the Quran. Ma'afuhan, uh, are there any questions? Okay, jazakallah khair. Okay. Iblis Lanatullah. One question is that Iblis Lanatullah, was he known to Adam as a rebellious entity already? Or did Adam thought of him as a sincere advisor when he fell for the waswasa? A very interesting question. Actually, a lot of people, they, you know, Allah, they'll say that um, Adam in his innocence, he was unaware that, you know, Iblis was, um, you know, actually in his actual form, that that was actually Iblis talking to Adam. But the more coherent answer seems to be, that, and this is my personal belief, and this is what Shaykh Radha al-Haq from South Africa have stated, that um, it's, uh, you know, Iblis actually did not, um, you know, uh, uh, come in his actual form. Like he, he didn't believe that, that, you know, Iblis didn't come in his form and proclaim that I am Iblis, the one who um, rejected Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's command to prostrate towards you. So the most likely, um, scenario is that Adam was not aware that who this individual was and that he was made to think through prolonged exposure to this individual and not having prolonged diseases as one of the characteristics stated majority of the opinion is that Hazrat Ayyub had a disease which made him an outcast per my understanding yes that is the uh, opinion but Mustafa Al-Khin this is the alim that I quoted the Shami scholar in his Al-Aqid of Islamia he rejects this opinion for various reasons which we can go into in the more extensive uh, coverage of it inshallah and are we to consider minority opinion? Please elaborate. Sometimes you can't take the minority opinion um, if the reasoning is stronger, right? So there are times in history where the minority opinion eventually became the majority opinion. Um, so it depends on the reasoning that is given. If you have the majority opinion, but then no reasoning is provided, but then you have the minority opinion and some reasoning is provided with sound proofs, then the ulama would be inclined towards the minority opinion sometimes, and it would be fair to do so. Okay, Marafana, are there any other questions? Okay, Jazakallah khair, and I will see you all next week. Please keep me in your du'as. Wa akhiru da'awana alhamdulillah alameen. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.